0: Now, a church exists for two reasons. According to Scripture, according to God's Word, there's two reasons that a church exists. Now, there's lots of imposter reasons, but in Scripture we learn that God calls a church together, creates a church, brings it into being, in order to, number one, worship Him, to worship God, and number two, in order to labor with God ...for his kingdom, but get this, in the place where he put that church. So a church exists to worship God in its place... ...and to work with God for his kingdom in its place. Now we do this in a lot of ways. We labor with God for his kingdom in lots of different ways... We do it when we faithfully live out the grace of God in our relationships with other people. In our our relationship with God, when we respond to His grace and come back and come to Him. And we do it when we live out the grace of God in our relationship to creation. This is what it means to be the church, to work for God, to work for His kingdom. We're witnesses of God's kingdom when we labor for the peace and the flourishing of our neighbors and our neighborhoods. When we do this for our workplace and civic organizations. And we witness to God's kingdom when we use our gifts in our abilities, in our talents, in our resources, in our positions, and we use our influence, whatever big or small influence you might have, whether it's over one person or a whole city, wherever your lot in life has placed you, when you use your gifts and resources and positions and your influence to establish belonging and meaning and truth and beauty and fairness, when you do these things, you are laboring with God For his kingdom, the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Now that phrase all the world it doesn't just mean geographically go to every corner. It also means all of the spheres of this world. It means go into the legal part of our world and the engineering part of our world and go into the field of architecture and art and teaching and urban planning and farming and go into the healthcare industry and the food industry and skilled labor and go into all of the world, every sphere, every square inch of the world. Go into it and labor with God for His kingdom, for His shalom. And as we go into all of these spheres of the world, whether it's a country or a, or a vocation, as we go into these things, our job is to figure out where the brokenness is and to work for healing. In very simple terms, we as a church must worship God and we must be a faithful presence. In our place. In this community. In your jobs. In your family. In your neighborhoods. We must be a faithful presence. Faithful to God. Faithful to his kingdom. And faithful to this place. Some people are so busy trying to be faithful to God. They're unfaithful to their place. To be a church is both. It's to be faithful to God. And to the place. We've said this many times. In the very beginning of Corinthians. We see that. When, when Paul writes a letter to, his, to a church, he always refers to two realities. Who they are in Christ and who they are in place. To the church of God in Corinth. Both realities are critical to us being faithful. Faithful. Now that's a tricky balance. Being faithful to God in a place. Some people get so into God that they lose track of the place. Some people get so into their place that they lose track of God. Some are trying so hard to hold to purity that they're irrelevant. And some people are trying so hard to be relevant that they lose track of who God is. It's a tricky balance to maintain and it's a balance that the Corinthians did not have. We see in our passage this morning that the Corinthians were failing to be faithful. Faithful witnesses to God in their place on two fronts. First of all, they were accepting some things that they should have been rejecting. And secondly, they were rejecting some things they should have been accepting. Turn with me if you have a Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll pick up in verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we'll start in verse 18. Now, this passage this morning, before we look look closely at it, uh, you just need to remember that 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 to 23, it's part of a single sustained argument that begins way back in chapter 1, verse 10. It goes all the way to chapter 4, verse 21. And from 1.10 to 4.21, Paul is addressing a problem the Corinthian church has. They fight like cats and dogs. They're, they're splitting at the seams. And we've seen over the last few weeks, this church that's filled with divisions, it's, it's filled with cliques, it's, it's filled with fighting and quarreling. We've seen over the past several weeks that the way Paul addresses their fighting is he says, quit it, stop your fighting. And then he says, there are three reasons you're fighting. And he addresses each of those. First, he says, you misunderstand who Jesus really is. In other words, not everybody who claims the name of Jesus is actually identifying with the real Jesus. Lots of people make Jesus into their homeboy, you know, into their own little pet project that affirms what they want. And Jesus says, part of the reason you're fighting is you misunderstand the nature of who Jesus really is. Another, He does that in, mostly in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he begins to say, look, not only do you misunderstand the nature of Jesus, you misunderstand the nature of church leadership. Not every church that fights is it because of their view of church leadership, but the Corinthians were really messed up in the way they related to church leadership, and that was a source of their fighting. And then as we got into chapter 3, we saw that it began to talk about another root issue of their fighting was their view of the church. They misunderstood the nature of the church. Now, when we get to verses 18 um, through the end of the chapter, we see that Paul pauses for a moment and he reviews his prescription for their bad health he goes back over starting in verse 18 he says let no one deceive himself if anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age remember the church was filled with people who because they knew they were wise they looked down on the other people who weren't as smart as them who weren't as wise with them and they split up into all these groups of I'm smarter than you are And so Paul says, if anyone among you thinks that he is wise... Now look, in Greek, this is called a first-class conditional statement, which is fancy language for it. There was a way of saying, if, you, in Greek, that really meant since you. (laughs) Since there are those among you. There was a way you could do Greek grammar that says, I'm going to use the word if, but it really means the reality is there. Since some among you think that they are wise, let him become a fool, that he may become wise... For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. That was the passage that Hanson read. I, learned, I loved hearing Hanson read the first line. As for me, what was the first line of the Job passage? As for me, I will serve God. I loved hearing Hanson read that because I knew that's true about him. Paul is quoting that passage here. He's saying, look. Do not think that you can adopt the philosophies and the value system of this world and it not have a profoundly negative effect on your life. Do not think that you can get away with playing by the rules of the world. Don't don't kid yourself. Part of what it means to be a Christian is to side with God when God and the world are not on the same side. And be assured God knows your heart and you cannot outsmart him, and you cannot trick him, and you cannot deceive him. You might be a deacon in a church, a leader in a church. You might be a leader in the community, and everybody else think one thing. But God knows when you choose the world system over his values, and you will not get away with it. This is what Paul is saying. Now, do you, one of the things that strikes me here is how black and white Paul sees the world. Right when, when Paul looks at life, he sees this radical opposition between two very different realities. It, it's this idea that there is a spiritual conflict and, and this spiritual battle cuts through all of life. There's this running opposition, this running encounter between two opposing forces, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. Now we see this... Picture throughout scripture. Let me just show you one example. Turn a few pages to the right to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. Now, now stay where you are. I mean, hold your spot in 1 Corinthians. We'll come back to it. But a few pages to the right. Notice Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. Very black and white. There's the spirit. There's the flesh. There's the value system of God. There's the value system that sets itself over against God. So this idea that there is a fundamental spiritual opposition. Between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And it is very real. And this is spiritual warfare. It is spiritual warfare between good and between evil. And it knows, get this, it knows no territorial boundaries. And what I mean by that, when I say that there is a fundamental spiritual conflict that knows no territorial boundaries, what I mean is that this is a fight between regimes. It is not a fight between realms. Now, now what I'm saying there is that it runs, this battle, this line, this opposition runs through every department of life. There is no such thing as Christian music and non-Christian music. On this level, when it comes to political parties, when it comes to the church, when it comes to your own heart, there is a line right through the middle of it of warfare. See, one of the problems we have is that we create these little ghettos and we identify them as Christian as if everything within that ghetto is Christian and everything outside of it is not. So if you've seen the movie The Village, this is what that movie is getting at. You cannot lock out evil because the spiritual battle runs right through every department of life. There is a serious battle. It runs through all of human life, all of culture. It, it's this battle between God and darkness and it cuts through your own heart and it cuts through your own family. There is no such thing as a perfectly Christian family and a non perfectly non-Christian family. This battle line runs through every family. It runs through our community. It runs through the justice system. I mean, Scott and... And and Aaron, know this, that right in the heart of the... There are moments of beautiful goodness and truth and fairness and justice. And then right in the heart of the justice system, there can be profound unfairness. It it runs all the way through politics. This is the problem with the church latching on to a particular political party as if that party is within the Christian ghetto and the other party is outside of Christianity. The problem with that is that the line runs right through the middle of both parties. And, and just because a politician claims Christ doesn't mean the line doesn't run through his heart or his decisions. This battle, this between right and God's kingdom and the world's kingdom, it runs through medicine, and technology, and recreation, and construction, and city planning. This fundamental spiritual conflict runs right through the heart of every facet of our lives. And Paul is saying, if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he starts out in verse 18 saying, let no one deceive himself. He's saying, look, Corinthians, your threat is not from outside the church, it's from within the church. Now, in the letter to the Galatians, the threat to the church in Galatia is clearly from outsiders. But on this example, he says, let no one of you deceive himself. This line runs through the hearts of Christians. If you're a Christian or if you know a Christian, then you know that a Christian remains a thoroughly sinful creature. No better in himself than the non-Christian. And a Christian can be just as limited and just as short-sighted as a non-Christian. This line runs through everybody's heart. Now, don't get me wrong. I know, for example, that when children are beginning to recognize the world around them, they see things very black and white. And there's a lot of conflict between parents and children because children don't yet understand that not all of life is black and white. And part of growing up is learning to recognize gray, right? I mean, you can imagine the little girl on her first day of school. She looks over her shoulder. She's going to get on the bus. And she sees her mom laughing and crying. And in that moment, she realizes that joy and sorrow are not mutually exclusive. That that most of life is not black and white. But a critical point is that there is something black and white in life. And it is the battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And just because we don't always know where the line is, doesn't mean it's not there. Take the whole area of fashion. Is beauty a bad thing? No. Our God cannot bring himself to make two snowflakes the same way, or two trees the same way, or two sunsets. I mean, the, the reason our world is so beautiful is because our Creator is so beautiful. So is it wrong to to enjoy fashion? Is it wrong to recognize some shirts are ugly (laughs) and some are beautiful? In some ways of arranging a house or a garden or a city or a wardrobe or beautiful in other ways, they're ugly. Is that wrong? No, it's not wrong. But... There can be, right through the middle of beauty, right through the middle of, of a culture that's in love with fashion, there can be the battle of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. When in order to be fashionable, a woman must dress immodestly, she's come to a point where she's got to choose between fashion and godliness. Godliness. When Janelle, when I was a youth minister in Bay City, Texas, there was a young girl in our youth group and she was beginning to really fall in love with God and she was beginning to see this. And she asked my wife to come to her house and to help her go through her closet and pick out everything that was immodest. Because she, you see, even though she loved fashion, she realized that fashion has a line running through. And there comes a time where a young lady who loves fashion must hear these words of Paul... You must look like a fool in the eyes of the world if you're going to be truly wise. And it could be that the reigning fashion of your time, you can't have it. And you'll look stupid. But that's only—that's true wisdom. You see, Paul is saying this line runs through every department of life. There's a fundamental spiritual conflict in life and it knows no territorial boundaries Because it's a conflict of regimes, not realms. And it's not just female fashion. This fundamental opposition shows up in business. Often in business, a person will face a choice between accepting God's value system or a perfectly acceptable value system that is not of God and not of God's kingdom. And that person has to decide, which kingdom will I choose? And it is black and white. And it is a spiritual battle. And to go with God's values in that moment, there are times when a businessman must be a fool in the eyes of the world. This is so important for our businessmen. Do not think that you can adopt the philosophies and the value system of our world as if such choices are not important. Do not think that you can get away with it. Don't kid yourself. You cannot. Part of what it means to be a Christian is to side with God's value system and be assured that God knows every decision you make and the motives of your heart and the value system you're playing by. I've thought a lot about our teenagers this week as I've been praying. I've thought about Hanson on the track team. If you, if you were a teenager ever, some of you, I'm not sure, You think about the athletic culture where so much of our... Was athletics created by God? Yes. Is competition a good thing? Yes. But don't we see this line running right through the middle of athletics in our society? And don't we see this brutal battle and there can be times for a person who wants to be very competitive, which is okay and godly, who wants to be excellent. There are times when a person in that world has to make a choice that makes that person look like a fool in the eyes of the culture they're involved in. I know that when you're a teenager. it can, When you're in college. It can be so difficult. To live a life. Of undivided loyalty to Christ. And sometimes the culture of your school. Or your team. Or your particular neighborhood. Or your set of friends. Sometimes that culture can be so contrary. To the values of God. That you must be a fool in the eyes of the world in order to maintain Christian integrity. But here's the kicker. Look at verse 20. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, of the, not the wise, yet the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. There he's talking about the people who are wise in the eyes of the world, who are wise in the eyes of the fashion industry, the business world, or the sports team. He says he knows that they are futile whether it's a decision about your business or what you're going to wear or how you're going to fit in, if you're going to be cool at school or not, when you do not pick God's way, you are picking darkness and death. You are picking futility. In other words, you're picking a path that does not work. It will ruin you. It will destroy you. When you fail to see the issue clearly and it's hard because the Corinthians missed it. They thought that on this particular issue there was no battle and the value system they took from the world they thought was neutral and it was okay to act this way. But Paul as an outsider, it's always easier to look from the outside, isn't it? Paul as an outsider said, that issue there, your love affair with being wise, you pick the wrong side and it's futile. It will not work for you. It will destroy you. It means the people in our world who are calling the shots in fashion or business or the track team, if they are not going with God's values, they may look wise for a season. It might work enough so that their culture affirms them, but they are not wise, they are futile, and it will not lead to life, to real living. But this isn't the only way the Corinthian church was failing. Remember I said they were failing on two fronts. They were accepting something they should have rejected. But also they're rejecting something they should have accepted. This is verses 21 to 23. Now before we read them, in order to understand their point, we need to know something peculiar about the Corinthian culture 2,000 years ago. Remember, we are reading a document from another culture. And because it's in English and you can recognize enough of the words, sometimes you trip up and think it just is a one-to-one corollary and a straight transfer. And that's naive, right, Mike, to think that communication has occurred. They had different issues. They had a different way entirely of living. You need to know this culture is as far from us as um, an aboriginal tribe in Australia's culture might be far from us. For example, in the middle of the first century A.D., in this cosmopolitan Mediterranean city of Corinth, if you wanted to be really successful, you didn't go to business school. You went to public speaking school. To be a very successful person in that Greco-Roman culture, you had to be an outstanding orator, an outstanding public speaker. So the best public speakers were the rock stars the millionaires, the powerful and influential people. They had the groupies. So as a result, families would make huge sacrifices in order to send their children to the best school with the best teacher because public speaking had to be learned in an apprenticeship setting because there were a tremendous amount of rules. It's not just that you had a way with words. It's that you had mastered a very specific way of speaking. And part of the rules of living where in, in, in Corinth at this time was that if you found this teacher and this teacher took you, you would have exclusive loyalty to that teacher. And what I mean by exclusive loyalty is that you began to talk like that teacher. We have actually archaeological and historical evidence that says people not only began to speak like their teachers, they would begin to dress like their teachers. And even in one count Epictetus, they would walk like their teachers. They would develop the same gait, which happens today in rap music. Right? So it's not that far, okay? So this is what's going on here, and when you develop exclusive loyalty to your teacher, part of the way you would live that out is that you would be very critical of the weaknesses of any other teacher, and you would be verbal about that. And you would sing the praises of your teacher and totally trash the other guy's teacher. And that's exactly what's happening in Corinth. The Christians in Corinth were treating their favorite preacher, their favorite pastor as a leader in the community in that same kind of way. They would identify their favorite preacher, their favorite teacher, the one they thought was the best. And they would imitate him. They would dress like him. They would talk like him. And they would be very critical of the other church's preacher, of the other church's way of worship. ...of the other church's way of doing things. And this was causing the church in Corinth to fracture at the seams. Go back to chapter 1. Look at verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ... ...that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you... ...but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. Look, he's saying, stop saying this guy's bad. Stop judging in all of these different ways. Have the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is this. Now look, that's very important. Their fighting was not any old fighting. It was a very specific fighting that came out of their culture. What I mean when I say you're fighting is this. Each of you says, I follow Paul. Or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. See, you're you're living just like your world. You're picking your favorite teacher. You're saying, I follow him and yours is stupid. Or yours doesn't walk right, or yours doesn't speak well, or he doesn't have this particular piece of doctrine just exactly right. Now jump to chapter 3, verse 21. So let no one boast in men. You see, he's talking to these guys. He's saying, stop boasting in your teacher. For all things are yours. See, he's saying, stop saying you belong to Apollos or Paul or Cephas because you know what the reality is? Paul, Apollos, Cephas belong to you. That was his whole point about church leadership was the leaders are, yeah, the leaders of the church, but they're also field hands. They belong, the the field workers belong to the field is what he's saying. This is something Wendell Berry has made very clear in his fiction. Over and over, he talks about farmers who learn that the farm lasts longer than the farmer and that the farmer belongs to the land and when we switch that around, we rape our land. And, he, and so when he sets up this analogy and says the church is the field and the leaders are the workers, he's saying, yeah, they've got authority, but they belong to you. And then the problem with these people, with this group over here saying, we belong to Apollos, we exact, act just like him as Paul is saying, you've got it all backwards. Apollos belongs to you. And not just Apollos, but this group's leader belongs to you. And this group's leader belongs to you. These Corinthians, by putting their favorite church leader up on a pedestal, they ended up, get this, cutting themselves off from the riches that God had outside of their favorite leader. Think about it. Some of the Corinthians were in danger of cutting themselves off through the work of God in Paul's life. Do you see? He's saying you're, you're in danger. Now look, there's a lot, there's huge theology going on in, in verses 21, 22, and 23 that have to do with the fact that Christians will reign and rule in this world in the new kingdom, in new heavens and new earth. But I think it's important for our church this morning to center in on this passage on this particular perspective of the passage. Many of you know that I grew up as a Baptist. My grandfather, 50 years, Baptist pastor in Louisiana. My father is a Baptist pastor. My brother, my brother-in-law was. He left the fold like I did. Um, My uncle, I'm thoroughly pastorized, okay? (laughs) And uh, I grew up a Baptist in the deep south the son of two generations of Baptist pastors. And I became a Baptist pastor because it's the family business, apparently. And um, I went to a Baptist university and got a Baptist degree and then went to a Baptist seminary, which is preacher training school, and got another Baptist degree. And then I was on staff at a Baptist church. And then I went to Asbury Theological Seminary, a Methodist school. And... I was profoundly changed. I was deeply changed. I was only there for one year. But the time living around people where I for the first time in my life, I was a religious minority. And that one year around people from other denominations was so formative in Janelle and me, in our life, that we decided to leave Kentucky and move to England for three reasons, and one of those three reasons was because we knew that God needed to keep us out of our heritage a little longer. In order to open our perspective up, because we had discovered that the riches of God cannot be contained in any single denomination. And we wanted our children to be raised by parents who had a wider view and a deeper and wider grasp of God's kingdom than any single denomination. Now, there's much, like I said, there's a lot more going on in this passage than this. But this is important for our church. We are an Anglican church. We're not ashamed of that. We are. But we wear our Anglicanism lightly. I don't mean by that we hide it. Clearly, it's all over the room. In, my, in the way I'm dressed, this is an Anglican way of saying I'm under the authority of Christ. I've been vetted um, by a particular denomination. There's accountability in my life, and I'm submitting myself to someone else. So we've got the trappings of Anglicanism everywhere, but you don't have to be an Anglican to be a member of our church. You do have to agree that our church is Anglican, and you're not going to try to mess with So when I say we wear our Anglicanism lightly, I do not mean we hide it, we diminish it, or we ignore it. What I mean is that we know Anglicanism is not the only way to think clearly about the Christian life. Anglicanism is not the only way of thinking clearly about the Christian life. I don't necessarily think that all the different denominations are a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. I I think that we needed the Reformation for a number of reasons, one of which, the Catholic Church had a stranglehold on culture and all culture had to flow through the church and God's kingdom is bigger than the church and it works outside of the church. Now, the church is a primary locus of the way God works in this world but it's not the only way. I don't think that all these different denominations are necessarily... It appears to me that the Christian life is so rich that it develops its full glory not just in a single denomination, but in many denominations. And aren't you glad it takes more than a bunch of white people to reveal who God is? I mean, for goodness sake, if this was God and this was all there was to Him. I'm not, now, I'm not saying that every Christian leader and every Christian heritage has the same worth. Uh, there are many places where Paul says you must be discerning. You must weigh things in order to pursue what is best. And certainly Paul is like, look, just because something claims Christian doesn't mean that it is. It's not necessarily Christian. But if you are an Anglican, embrace your Anglicanism. But do not cut yourself off from what is right and good in the Catholic Church. Or the Presbyterians. Or the Mennonites. Or... or The Baptists or what have you. See, one of the dangers of being like me, of of growing up in a tradition and seeing its weaknesses very clearly and leaving it and embracing another is that you get a very bad attitude if you're not careful from your heritage. But I must learn to see what God is doing through the Baptists and be grateful for it and know that in 20 years I'll see Anglicanism as clearly as I see Baptists. Because when you do, when you do identify yourself with exclusive loyalty to a particular denomination or a particular leader, when you do that, it breeds factionalism. It creates the exact dynamics that are going on in Corinthians. And you, it, you do the danger of the Corinthians. You, you cut yourself off from the vast heritage of, that you have coming to you as a Christian, the Orthodox heritage, the Catholic heritage, the Lutheran, the Charismatic, the I mean, you just, God is at work in an incredible way, and you cut yourself off from this incredible wealth that are yours simply because you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Now, as a church, we exist to worship God. And to labor with God for His kingdom in this place. And in order to do that, in order to be faithful in this place, there are things we must reject. And there are things we must accept. And and having that balance is critical. And the church in Corinth shows us how easy it is to not have that balance. Let no one deceive themselves. You You can be so committed to being right. You can be so wrong. Slavery. My heritage, the Southern Baptist, started because the Baptist in the North told the Baptist in the South, you cannot own slaves and be missionaries. And the Baptist in the South said, oh yeah, we'll start our own denomination, we'll keep our slaves, and we'll keep doing mission work. Now does that mean the Baptists in the South were totally out, and the Baptists in the north were totally in. No, see, that's the problem, right? There is no ghetto where you can move God out and move God in. That line runs right through the heart. I'm so grateful for what God did in my life. You know how the Anglicans started? There was a king that wanted a divorce. Does that mean Anglicanism is totally out? Do you know that that there have been... Denominations that have been so purified by martyrdom. Does that mean they're totally in? No, this line runs right through. And we've got to get the balance right. History is filled with failures and successes on this very issue. The kingdom of darkness is real. And it is in every sphere of life. And it is entirely opposed to God. And it is entirely absent of light and life and one of the basic fundamental struggles of being a christian is discerning the difference between the real god who gives life and the idol that will destroy your soul let no one deceive himself let's pray